Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and salutations. This is CJ formally conveying my presence and letting you know that, yes, I still exist and this podcast still exists despite my reduced frequency of episodes in recent months. The fall semester is mercifully almost at an end for me, so that's good. It's been uh, admittedly not anywhere near as bad as the two semesters of the 2020 to 2021 school year, when we were still under extreme COVID protocols. So about the best thing I can say about the 2020 to 21 school year is that it was so horrible for me that it made the current school year seem not so bad by comparison. But nonetheless, I've been very busy, and it's obviously been difficult for me to put out episodes as frequently as I would prefer to because of that. In particular. I will gripe a little bit and say that this semester, I've had to teach a night class again for the first time in many years. Used to be where I work that they would kind of say, well, expect you'll probably teach a night class most of the time. But in practice, once you were there for a while and had some seniority in your department, you could choose to not teach a night class if you wanted to. But then starting this current school year that we're in, they made it very, you know, No exceptions across the board. Every full-time faculty member has to teach at least one night class per semester. No exceptions. And so I've been back to teaching a night class, which is no fun and does all kinds of things to mess with my schedule. And anyway, I won't get into it any more than that. Just to say that while overall so far this school year for me has been much better than last school year for a number of reasons, almost all of which are related to COVID lockdowns last year. Nonetheless, there's still enough monkey wrenches in this current semester that it has messed with my schedule and affected, in particular, my ability to have available time that's good for recording. But anyway, in other news that's much more positive but also quite stressful in the short run, I'm under contract to buy a home and I am going to be moving into it next month, January. We're actually closing, I believe, the day before New Year's. And other than if some bizarre, unlikely, crazy, extreme thing of some sort intervenes, it looks like, you know, it should all go smoothly as far as buying the house goes and all that. 
So if you don't know, I had owned a house that I lived in in St. Augustine uh, for just shy of 10 years, and then I sold it in 2019, moved one county down to Flagler County, Florida, about a half hour south of St. Augustine. Did that for a variety of reasons. Partly it's because real estate in St. Augustine is, and was even back in 2019, very inflated. And my family needed to move into a little bit larger house than what we were living in for those 10 years up till 2019. But in the St. Augustine area, we simply could not afford a house that would fit our needs. And so a big part of moving one county south is just to have more reasonable housing costs. But then in addition to that, my wife has a lot of family down here in Flagler County, and it's also closer to her work as well. So for all of those reasons, we sold our home in St. Augustine in 2019, moved one county south. And since we made that move, we've been renting. So, you know, we rode out the COVID madness in a rental home, which was large, but kind of old and a little bit tired. You know, everything works and it's big. It's got a lot of square footage. But, you know, aside from the fact we didn't want to keep renting forever, we also, you know, wanted to move into a little bit newer, nicer sort of a house again. So we will be buying again. And I'm really excited. The house itself is is very cool there. It's not brand new, but almost everything that matters is brand new or virtually brand new. So, you know, the kitchens and bathrooms have been fairly recently redone. The roof the water heater, the air conditioner, always vital in Florida, and all of the appliances are literally brand new. Like, the appliances still have the stickers on them and all that stuff. And also, I'm pretty excited, we've got a yard that, while not huge, is amenable to doing some suburban micro-farming type stuff. So, you know, I'm going to gradually be planting edible foods of various types and so forth in our new yard now that we're going to be owning it again. Obviously, when we're renting, I don't bother with that sort of thing. There'd be no point. I've done a little bit of container gardening here, living in the rental, but that's really about it. And that's just, you know, very marginal, but I always wanted to get more into the suburban micro farming. And in particular, with civilization collapsing and all that sort of stuff, it seems like a really good time to um, get into that more heavily. So obviously the move itself is going to be a giant stressful pain in the ass, as moves always are. But once it's over, we're going to be in a much better place, both literally and figuratively. And by the way, my new home office slash podcasting studio in the new house is going to be really cool. The only, th- the only downside is I won't have my own private attached bathroom. The cool part is in this rental where we've been living, the room that's been serving as my office slash podcasting studio has its own private connected bathroom in the back. And unfortunately, I won't have that in the new one. But in all other respects, the new office slash studio is superior. It's bigger and... um you know, just in general, it's got more space, it's a little bit nicer, all those sorts of things. So anyway, enough about me. This episode is going to be a rebroadcast of a conversation I had a couple weeks ago on the podcast Liberty Lockdown with Clint Russell. And Clint had me on to talk about historical examples of declining and falling empires and how some of these may apply to the current plight of the U.S. empire. So Clint, if you don't know, has been doing his podcast now for, I think, about a year and a half. He started it maybe a couple months, I think, into COVID lockdowns in 2020, and it's really taken off pretty quickly. 
So, you know, kudos to Clint for all of his uh, success so far in podcasting. And I very much appreciate him having me on, and I enjoyed the conversation very much. So if you're already a listener to Liberty Lockdown, and you've already listened to this episode with me, because like I said, it was released, I think, um, close to two weeks ago now, then there's no need to re-listen to it unless you just want to, because it's the same you know, conversation between Clint and myself. But if you're not already a listener to Liberty Lockdown, then I really think you might enjoy this conversation. It was... I think a really relevant one to a lot of current events and kind of near future prognostication. And of course, declining and falling empires and civilizational collapses and that sort of thing are always one of my pet interests when looking at history. So I enjoyed the conversation very much and I think you will as well. And again, thanks to Clint for having me on his show. And I would Highly recommend, if you're not already a listener to Liberty Lockdown, that you check it out, because I think you will enjoy it very much. So, please enjoy my conversation with Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown about empires in decline in history and what some of these historical precedents might tell us about where the American empire is headed. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. Today, I have on CJ of Dangerous History. I am thrilled to have him on because, obviously, we are in an empire in decline, and this is the man who can give us some historical backdrop to maybe correlate or see some cognates, see if I'm fear-mongering. Welcome aboard, CJ. Thank you for the time. Hey, you're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, go ahead and and give us some of the, the... historical backgrounds that you see or similarities that you see that we can uh, we can evaluate and maybe hopefully prevent the collapse i don't know are, are you uh, are you convinced that we are collapsing regardless of of what you and i may say on this show today <laughs> yeah i mean i th- i think the american system at least as we have known it is in pretty late stage decline and you know where exactly it goes there's a lot of potential you know, possibilities. But I think that the system as we have known it can't really hold together much longer without either, you know, breaking down and, you know, maybe splitting into multiple pieces or being uh, having like a revolution within the form. Perhaps, you know, one possibility is the uh, the empire gets held together, but it gets held together by brute force. That's always an option. Um, whether they'll be able to to make that work or not, I don't know, but um, there's, there's a lot of variables for sure. And, you know, I've studied a bunch of different imperial declines and collapses, and there's no perfect analogy of course, to yeah. the U.S. So it's sort of like you can see bits and pieces of some of them where there's similarities. Like there's obviously uh, some similarities in the decline and fall of Rome, but it, there's also a lot of things that are way different. Same thing, um, you know, some of the other ones I've looked at pretty closely – the decline and fall of the the Soviet empire, which is Mm. the most recent major empire to collapse, um, which is a very, very interesting one. Yeah. I I think that would probably be 
in a weird way, our most hopeful outcome is that there's just kind of a peaceful breaking apart of, you know, fringe, fringe nations. And then you have a relatively peaceful decline. I, I don't, I can't think of any other um, empires that fell without less bloodshed. Is there, is that kind of our, our most hopeful outcome or do you think it could be better or what do you think? I mean, I, I, I think it's probably one of the better possibilities is something along those lines, because, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, that could have gone way messier than it did. And it could have potentially the empire could have been held together if you had had somebody who was both as as uh, uh, calculating and, and, you know, in a cold blooded sense, brilliant, but also as ruthless as like a Stalin you know, somebody might have been able to to hold that thing together by brute force, but um, you know, the the more I've read into it, and I've been, I, I did a an early version of my po- an early episode of my podcast on the decline and fall of the Soviet Union, and in, in my early episodes, I was the episodes were shorter and less in depth than what I'm doing these days, and so you know, I think I covered the whole story in like an hour or something like that, you know, one episode, whereas if I were to recover it now which i'm considering doing it would be you know multiple episodes probably multiple hours a piece um so you know over the last year i've been reading more into the the decline and fall of the soviet empire and the more i look at it the more i really think a lot of the the credit for that one not going way worse goes to uh gorbachev himself as an individual that like it's just a freaking miracle that that guy, I don't know how it happened. I, I really still can't quite understand it. That that guy managed to rise to the top of the Soviet Communist Party while still being a relatively decent human being. Like, you know, he believed in communism and all that, but he also, he was no, he was no monster. He was no Stalin. He did not have the, the stomach to, you know, send in the tanks to go slaughter protesters or, you know, things like that. And so I really think that a lot of it comes down to the individual. So, you know, when I'm thinking about like ways that the American empire could, could fall relatively gracefully and end at least okay for a lot of people, um, you know, what I, I'm looking for in a president right now is basically an American Gorbachev, like somebody who maybe is going to try to fix the system because he still kind of believes in it, but who's at the end of the day, just a decent enough human being that when it does start to really fall apart, they will let it happen more or less, you know, peacefully. Now, even in the case of the Soviet uh, empire, and, and this is true of all empires that, that fall apart, different regions, some are going to end up better off than they were under the old empire, and some may end up worse off. And so that's always the tricky part. So, you know, th- I know that there are like collapsitarian people out there who are like nothing but, you know, gleeful looking at the d- decline and fall of the American empire. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of bad things about it, um, and I wish it had never been, you know, created in the first place. But I, I think sometimes they lose sight of the fact that you don't necessarily know that you're going to end up better off, even if the empire you're living under is, you know, corrupt and, and oppressive and has a lot of bad features and whatever. It's still possible that you might end up in a worse situation for one re- reason or another once it goes. I mean, you know, I, I you made look at- I made this point. I made this point on my show uh, just last week with Guy Swan that. You know, libertarians in particular have have been dreaming of the day that the U.S. dollar hegemony dies. And I'm like, yeah, well, you you may not want to live in the country where that happens. Like it 
yes, yes, it is better if we can get to sound money, especially if Bitcoin takes its place. I think long term that is going to be way more hopeful for humanity and freedom and liberty on the planet. However, in the interim, it's going to be extremely painful for a ton of people. And, and whether or not you're protected by it financially, a ton of people are not protected and it's going to be excruciating. I think the same thing goes for collapses of empires and, and uh, you know, the, the break off countries that come from that. It's like, yeah, some will be far better off and others will be uh, just an absolute hellscape. So I, I don't know. Do you have any opinion as to like, well, go, go ahead. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well you know, it, it sounds like we're, we're, pretty much on the same page with this idea that it's, I mean, there's a certain possibility of like, it might end up of where you feel like, be careful what you wish for kind of a thing, because the, you meet the new boss, he might even be worse than the old boss in some cases, (laughs) some, some places, you know, in, in the former Soviet bloc ended up relatively well doing pretty well within a few years. You know, a lot of the, the Eastern European satellite countries ended up doing all right, you know, Czech Republic's, Slovakia, East Germany, you know, rejoining with West Germany obviously is a lot better off than it was under the communist regime. But mm-hmm. then again, there were a number of other other places that ended up pretty pretty badly off uh, uh, Belarus and a number of other places that still are pretty nasty authoritarian places uh, to this day. Russia ended up really not doing that well, at least for for quite a while uh, in the nineties and in early aughts. Russia was doing pretty terribly, and they're still you know a pretty pretty poor and messed up. Uh, country overall they're doing better than they were 10 15 years ago but you know they experienced hyperinflation an almost total collapse of their economy um just all just unprecedented amounts of of crime and, and corruption and um all these sorts of things so yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where a lot of it depends on how how the system collapses if it does um you know, like I said, it's always possible that some kind of strong man might come along and manage to uh, hold it together by brute force, maybe, if the person is ruthless and smart enough uh, to do it. But even if it, if it breaks apart into pieces, not all of the pieces are going to do equally well. And it's going to depend on like, how much the place you live in was dependent upon the old system. If it was really dependent upon the old system, then you're probably going to have a harder time. And, you know, also it might depend on the culture of the people around you and all that sort of thing. This is, you know, why this idea of strategic relocation, which I know uh, you've done yourself recently, right? Yes, I um, have. Uh, well, yeah. What, what, I'm, what I marvel at with the, the Russia dissolution or the USSR's dissolution is that there, there wasn't a tremendous amount of violence. You know, like the, usually when you see an empire fall, I mean, it's in my, I'm not a, I'm not a real historian, but you know, my rudimentary understanding is that there's usually it's brought about because you either lose a a major war or your, your consistent warmongering ends up bankrupting the nation. But even when you're bankrupt, because you have, you know, fiat currency, oftentimes your final gasp of the empire, at least my greatest fear is that the final gasp of the U S empire will be one of militarism, where we will say, go to war with China or Iran or some big boy that basically makes it so that uh, we experience hyperinflation as well as, you know, potentially a mass casualty event. Um, Do you have any opinion as to what you think America will actually end up doing? Yeah, well, that's a real possibility, what you raised that, that you definitely see in the case of a lot of empires that have fallen throughout history. And, you know, there's often external war is a factor. Um, also civil war. 
and civil war it's it's another one of these things that some of these collapsitarians are like you know super excited about a potential american civil war and i'm like no thank you you don't know what you're talking about like you need to go go read some some real history because that is almost definitely not going to end well uh, regardless of who ends up winning there's going to be horrific um destruction and death along the way and if you look at civil wars throughout history, they very rarely have a happy ending where like, you know, Ron Paul ends up in charge after a, a bloody civil war in a society like good luck, you know, or you yeah. end up with like, you know, Ancapistan being established. But yeah, cool, because you're not going to have a guy who's liberty minded, who had who's, you know, powerful enough and vicious enough to take those reins of power. And then just be like, OK, I'm going to relinquish it all once I've now, con- you know, conquered everybody like it's pretty unlikely. He- yeah, exactly. I mean, those those sorts of conflicts tend to kind of in Darwinian way select for the most uh, uh, ruthless and effective psychopaths. Like that's who's likely to win that sort of a messy conflict. Um, but there's also the, this phenomenon that, that you were hitting on a minute ago where it, it is also very common for empires in decline to suddenly become – very reckless and aggressive in their foreign policy, like much more so than when they were doing well and, and on the on the rise and whatever like that. And um, I think it's the the historian Alfred McCoy who who coined the term for this micro militarism. He says empires in decline very often um, they they start to like just get into more wars and, and dumber wars and, and be recklessly aggressive. And you could argue that maybe that's what we've been seeing in terms of the U S over the last 20 years and might continue and maybe even amp up as, as things decline further. And you can see it also, for example, um, in the origins of world war one, where the, the, you know, why was Austria willing to go to full fledged war over their prince getting assassinated by some Serbians. Why didn't they, you know, try and deal with it in a less, you know, escalated sort of way? And uh, I really believe, and, and this is true to some extent of a lot of the, the European empires that jumped into World War I as well. Um, you know, the British were not nearly as in decline as the Austrians. Nonetheless, they perceived themselves to be like, you know, threatened by a rising Germany sort of thing. And um, so, you know, Austria was willing to lash out recklessly um, and ultimately caused the destruction of itself as an empire um, over something that maybe they could have handled at a lower at a lower level. And this is a very common thing where leaders of an empire that's on the rise often are surprisingly cautious and very picky about which wars they fight. And it, it's kind of paradoxical, but, but, you know, at the time when their empire is relatively doing well, they're actually being more cautious. Now, maybe those two things are actually related, right? Maybe part of why the empire is doing well is that they are being pretty cautious and only fighting, you know, certain wars that actually have some upside and whatever. But then as the empire starts to go into into decline, it seems like the leaders of the empire will very often, um, whether they realize consciously, I think this is happening on some level in their psychology, they'll sort of feel like, well, I... I kind of know deep down that this system is in big trouble and in decline. I don't really want to admit it to myself, though, fully, and I certainly don't want to say so publicly. Maybe, maybe if we pick a fight with somebody else, we can kick the living crap out of them, and then that'll hold the system together. That'll like reinvigorate the, the state and people's allegiance to it, and then also maybe if we win a war, 
we can extract something from the people we conquer or defeat or whatever, and that'll that'll re, you know juice the system back up again, whatever. So they sort of get it in their head that like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go you know fight a bunch of neighbors and fight a bunch of wars, and this is gonna make my empire great again. And most of the time, what actually happens when they do this is it doesn't turn the empire's uh, decline around; it speeds it up. That's what usually happens. And so, you know, the very thing that the leaders are doing, thinking it's going to reinvigorate the system and hold it together, actually makes it fall apart more quickly and sometimes ends really nasty where, you know, you you spark a giant war uh, that results in tons of death. And at the end of it, you know, you didn't even save your stupid system to begin with. So that's that's very much a concern for me is is that the U.S., you know, some somebody will, will be in the White House and decide, oh, yeah, you know, what we need is a good old fashioned World War Three. Uh, with a with a major power like China, that'll turn things around. It's like there's no way that that ends well. No, like, I, there's I just agree no with you. no way. Like, because what is what would victory even mean, right? In in terms of like a U.S. war with China, I, I don't I, I don't understand the the way our our current generation of political leaders and media establishment they talk about something like a war with China so flippantly. Whereas if you go back and look at you know in the in the Cold War. Our leaders, most of the time, were much more kind of cautious and were often much more, you know, they did some some horrific and stupid things like the Vietnam War, to be sure. But in terms of like, you know, pulling the trigger on on World War Three with the Soviets, they obviously it never, never quite happened. Right. Uh, they, always, they would talk you know, they one would side talk or tough. the other would back down. They would talk tough about communism, but they didn't they wouldn't, you know, just be like, yeah, we should go to war with Russia. Like, that's a pretty that's a pretty dangerous leap. <clears throat> and they knew. I mean, and, and unfortunately, back then, I think that the American people, for whatever reason, were were much more war weary and and concerned about, you know, just having the entire world die. I mean, they had been propagandized about nuclear war and and hiding under their desks as kids. And I think it 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 spread into the population that, hey, war with a nuclear power is not a joke. And it seems that as time has gone on, people don't take that as seriously. They don't like it should be completely taboo in my estimation to talk about war with Russia or China. And yet we had the 2016 election basically, um, you know, well, the, the outcome was basically lied about as to being uh, an infringement or an incursion by Russia. And it was very much a war footing from the Democrats of all people, which are allegedly the party of peace and blah, 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 which they aren't, but we don't need to get, get into that. Anyways, I, I wanted to say that from your paradigm, the description of the rise and fall of an empire, it seems to me that maybe the, the nineties were kind of the, uh, the apex of caution militaristically, even though we did have wars, uh, we've had wars always, but like the eighties, nineties, there was, uh, kind of a a lull to some extent there wasn't major war and then after 9-11 we're kind of end of empire stage is that uh, uh, the line of demarcation for you too or do you think that it started with the i don't know well what do you think well um i think the 90s are, are sort of like the the transition phase right they're the they're the gap between the end of the cold war and that whole you know situation and then you know, the all the, the wars in the Middle East, the war on terror and all that stuff hadn't quite happened yet. But but nonetheless, the precursors are there. Um, I, I think in the 90s, in the in the 80s, I think there was less major military intervention by the U.S. government, largely because of sort of the hangover of, of Vietnam syndrome was still kind of in, in the air. Um, you know, this is back when when Colin Powell was still relatively good and uh, he had the Powell doctrine. And, you know, one of the, the ideas was like, 
never get into a long war, always have a very clear strategy to win quickly, call it off and go home. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's that's certainly a lot better than the wars we ended up uh, getting into in this century. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. but but the the thing to me about the 90s, though, is it's it's where thing there could have been an alternate history. It's where, you know, you could have gone back from empire to, you know, more of like a Pat Buchanan type republic right which you know isn't perfect but is certainly much better than than what we ended up doing as far as amping up the empire when the soviets left um and in the 90s you can see um first off with the first gulf war that war would probably have not happened if the soviets weren't falling apart at the time Mm -hmm. um they they probably would have deterred it one way or another whether through the u.n security council or just you know through through military deterrence um, yeah, or or so, just the fact that that America wouldn't want to you know weaken itself because they still have this force that they're they're constantly building up to defend against at least theoretically, and then right. you know uh, as soon as that I, I think that's the thing that that concerns me most, or it makes me it it makes me question my own uh, philosophical beliefs is like is this human nature? Is it is it possible for there to be a singular global power that doesn't just uh, you know, bleed itself out with militarism because it seems as if like there was this kind of duopoly of of the USSR and and America that were holding each other at bay to some extent. Even though we still had Vietnam and other bullshit, but I'm just saying it, you weren't having world wars during that period. And then as soon as the USSR falls, it's like oh well, now we have a full blown you know conquest machine in America. Is that is that historically is that kind of what happens? Yeah, the the way that historians have often talked about it, especially kind of like old school um, uh, diplomatic history guys, is they'll use the phrase balance of power. And, you know, where it's good for the world or even just for a particular region, like back when sort of the center of a lot of the modern world was Europe, um, to have a balance of power. And the smarter statesmen of, say, like the 19th century, they actually were – a lot of the British statesmen of the 19th century were, were pretty good at this. They always just focused on a balance of power. After Napoleon was defeated, their number one goal wasn't, um, you know, they, they had their empire scattered all over the world, but the British weren't looking to dominate Europe itself. What they were looking to do was simply prevent another, you know, Napoleon or anything like that from happening. And so for a lot of the 19th century, the British were pretty aloof as far as entangling alliances in Europe would go. And what they would do is just try and like, as the, the other major powers in Europe were maneuvering against each other and whatever, the British would just sort of shift their support to whichever set of alliances happened to be kind of a little bit weaker in order to balance out whatever other countries were on the other side. And so, and that worked pretty well for a while. Yeah. Um, and then Bismarck, you know, once Bismarck unified Germany, he kind of sort of was trying to do that too. Um, in, in the latter part of his career, After, you know, he fought a bunch of wars to unify Germany, but then once he did it, he was largely trying to keep the status quo for the most part. Um, so, you know, if you have leaders who understand this idea that it's actually a good thing, if there's like a balance between different, you know, powerful States or different blocks of, of allies or whatever, that can actually be a relatively good thing. It, it you know, it's not perfect, but it might be the, the best as far as like realistic options go. Yeah. Well, what, um, the reason I'm asking is because <clears throat> it seems to me, and, and Trump made this point many, many times and, and the Republican party has, kind of open their their mind and their heart to this concept too is that there is no reason that we shouldn't be working with Russia to counterbalance China's rise 
to try and create that kind of bipolar, um, you know, power structure or balance of power, as you described it, uh, is that is that feasible? I mean, am I am I seeing that correctly? That that's probably a fair balance of power, or, or is that still too lopsided that you would just see domination? Because it seems to me China, with 1.4 billion people, an enormous industrial economy, um, you know, big big power and and uh, the Silk Road, things like that, that they that would probably be an equitable power sharing structure, but yet it seems as if we aren't interested in that. We want to, we want to make enemies with Russia and China simultaneously. Yeah. It's it, our, our current generation of leaders are for the most part, strategically completely um, stupid in the sense that they're, they're largely only thinking in terms of very, very short term interests and mm-hmm. like very short term, you know, just enhancing their, their own money and power in various ways. And, yep. you know, enhancing whatever institution they happen to be working for, whether it's, you know, the defense department or some branch of the military or some, you know, military, uh, industrial complex firm or whatever. They're, they're only thinking about the very short term, immediate, you know, um, my money, my power, all that, which then leads you to do things that strategically are really stupid and counterproductive. I mean, we already did um, by by launching all those wars in the Middle East. Um, the the U.S. did more than any Muslim ever could to unify a lot of the Muslim world against us. Right. Um, whereas, you know, the default setting of of the Islamic world is that there's lots of internal divisions. Right. Um, the the Sunni Shiite, you know, split being the most you know, dramatic and and most well known, but there's other different you know splits and rivalries and things like that. And so, by attacking them, you actually unify a lot of them uh, against you as the outside threat. And yeah, same sort of deal as far as if you're simultaneously poking Russia and China with a stick. I mean, I'll give Henry uh, Kissinger and and Richard Nixon credit uh, that as evil as they were, they were actually strategically fairly you know savvy where they understood, hey, we can actually kind of play Russia and China off against each other because even though they're both communists, they don't always like each other and they don't always get along. And they were able to leverage that, you know, to the advantage of the United States for a while. Um, Whereas our current generation of leaders, I I don't see anybody uh, who has anywhere near that amount of like our current leaders are just as evil as those ones, but they're strategically like way more stupid, way more stupid. Well, it it, it makes me they don't. Okay. I was just going to say the other thing, aside from like not not thinking about balance of power in terms of, you know, maybe uh, working with Russia to counterbalance China or or other, you know, potential rivals. There's also no no respect for the idea of allowing other powerful uh, states to have their own, as they used to say back in the day, spheres of influence. Sphere of influence. Yeah. So like the old school British in the in the 1800s, they kind of understood like. Yeah, you know, France, let them have, you know, their own little empire. And, and, uh, you know, yeah, of course, it's reasonable that Russia would want to kind of be in charge of the things in its own front yard or whatever like that. They, they had much more of a willingness to say, yeah, we want to be powerful and, and run the parts of the world that we control. But also, we understand that there are other, you know, powers, uh, maybe just regional ones even, but, but nonetheless, you know, the idea that the United States Navy should be dominating the South China Sea instead of China is just ridiculous. Yeah, it, yeah. it would be like if, if uh, China wanted to dominate the Gulf of Mexico or something like that. You know, how would Americans respond if the Chinese Navy started coming in in huge numbers into the Gulf of Mexico saying, all right, we're setting up shop now to run this thing? Um, probably probably Americans would not be OK with it, but we're expecting them and I've got no love for the the Chinese uh, Communist Party and all that, but like it's completely reasonable that whoever the hell was running China would probably want to 
you know, of be course. dominant in their own front yard. Yeah. Well, and and the irony that that the American empire, the one kind of founded on the concept of uh, that which governs closest or, or most local governs best. And yet we will not allow Russia to see after their bordering nations, nor will we allow China to see over China, uh, Taiwan or any of these other um, places. So it's it, it really does seem like a recipe for unsustainability. Uh, it makes me question whether or not, and as much as I'm not a nationalist and I'm not even a fan of nationalists, it does make me wonder if the the loss of nationalism when it when it comes to the leaders of the American empire is ultimately going to be the death of us because they no longer prioritize sustaining America. To me, it seems that they are they are owned and operated by globalist belief systems and and you know, some people theorize, uh, particularly GOP people believe that it's China that owns our politicians and owns our academia. And I think to some extent, there's some truth to that. But I think moreover, it's a it's a globalist billionaire cabal that really kind of dictates how our politicians behave. And they don't have any allegiance to the American people. Uh, is that is that a fair read or what do you think? Am I, am I Alex Jonesing too hard? No, I, I mean, I think there's definitely some truth to that. I don't think that those people are quite as all powerful as, you know, some of the more uh, wilder sure. conspiracy theorists believe. I don't think they're quite as as all on the same page and, and uh, monolithic sure. and unified. There's factions within those people for mm-hmm. sure. But on the other hand, it's true that there is sort of like a, a click and there's layers to it. There's levels to it, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the Bilderberg group or, you know, all these other other different groups like these are real things. And um, I can't remember the name of the the book uh, and and who wrote it, but the idea of a superclass, this transnational, cosmopolitan, you know, super wealthy, powerful people, uh, most of whom hold no formal political office or anything like this. Um, Some of them might be the heads of gigantic multinational corporations and things like that. But, yeah, they they really have no allegiance to Mm -hmm. any particular nation, regardless of where they're from, whether they're American, European, Asian, whatever. Um, they don't really have allegiance first and foremost to wherever they're from. Instead, they really they have more of, allegiance to each other as they, they have like a class cohesion and class consciousness. Yeah, very. That's kind exactly of, what I was going to say is that it's it is it is a class a class consciousness, but of the billionaire elite. It's kind of the you know proletariat versus the bourgeoisie almost. It's it's yep. fascinating, and and simultaneously you have a, a a rise of a populist left movement, which makes sense because they're they're trying to counterbalance this kind of dominating. Uh, you know, billionaire or trillionaire class that's that's arising. Uh, what similarities are there? And I, I've always questioned this. And I, like I've said, I'm not a historian, but I I've always been interested in the French Revolution. What what are the similarities there versus differences? What do you think that that has any anything any lessons we can learn from that? Because that that's probably the the one I least want to see. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, could could go even slightly worse than say the uh, the Russian revolution or the Chinese revolution right even sure sorry sorry worse, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm assuming i'm assuming that won't happen since we have guns here but yeah it's uh, that would be the worst yeah well i mean definitely with the french revolution you know it's it's different in the sense that you had like an old school monarchy and aristocracy and all that so the kind of the starting institutions are different um and so you know they they probably played out and collapsed in different ways than like a you know, modern democratic republic and all that sort of stuff would with a semi-capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's definitely some similarities where if you look at the, the first domino 
that started the chain of events that ultimately led to the French Revolution was fis- fiscal crisis of the French regime. And that was caused by basically um, close to a century of really going hard at the idea of trying to make France the superpower of the day. It started um, at the kind of turn of the, of the previous century with Louis XIV, where he was just like, I want France to be the most awesome, powerful uh, kingdom and I really don't care what it takes to get, I'll, like, I'll spend whatever I have to spend. I'll, you know, squeeze whoever I've got to squeeze to make France just the, you know, unquestionable dominant force and, um, you know, put them on a path of, of uh, financial unsustainability. And then his, his successors kept getting into wars with Britain, most of which they lost. A few of them were, were draws. None of them were really out, outright French wins. And the British they had a much better organized uh, fiscal system and a much more kind of modern money and banking and government finance system. And so the British were able to weather those wars and pay for them much better and keep, you know, overall better national credit. Um, and they won more of them than they lost. So they usually at least had some something to show for it as far as, oh, look, we took over, you know, it's this island over here or whatever. Um, but by the time you're getting uh, into the kind of the third quarter of the 18th century, um, France is in, is in really bad shape and their, their fiscal system was still like not much better than a medieval one. And then France decides to back the American rebels um, after the Battle of Saratoga in 1778, which was the first real big American victory of the Revolutionary War and which convinced France to, okay, the Americans actually have a snowball's chance in hell. Maybe if we you know help them out a little bit, they can stick it to the British. And you know the French monarchy, they weren't backing the American rebellion because they read Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and were persuaded to, you know, care about liberty. This was an old school uh, absolute monarchy. They were doing it for one reason and one reason only to stick it to their rival rivals, the British. Right. right. And they it's got a classic it. proxy war. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. It's classic, you know, getting involved in someone else's uh, someone else's wars. Um, and, and it's a lesson that the team America should have learned because it's literally baked into our origin story. But um you know, it's great for the Americans because without French help, there's a good chance they couldn't have kept up the war long enough to win. And right. then France, like on the one hand, they got their objective. They, you know, caused the British Empire to lose a big chunk of colonies for sure. But the, but France got nothing else out of doing that. Um, Spain at least got a little bit of stuff here and there. Like Spain got Florida back. Now they lost it 30 years later, but right. um, they at least got Florida back and like had a couple other things to show for it. Because uh, Spain also got into the war, um, the American Revolutionary War against the British. But France got nothing other than like saying, oh, look, we stuck it to the British and caused them to lose some colonies. And that was really the amount of money that France dumped into backing the American rebellion was kind of the last straw to where it's, it's not a coincidence that it's less than a decade later that the French Revolution happens. Um, because that really made things hard. The king then is looking to um, squeeze more revenue in order to pay for all this. And then he gets you know, pushback from the rest of the country, basically saying, no, you can't slap a bunch of new taxes on us unless you allow the Estates General to meet, which was sort of like a French parliament that had not met for like a century. I think Louis XIV uh, had, had basically said, nah, I don't, I don't need... Uh, the Estates General anymore. I'll just because uh, Louis the Fourteenth was famously the guy who said "L'État c'est moi, I am the state." Right. Mm. So um, he kind of dissolved the Estates General, and it didn't meet for for a long time. Nobody at the time the Estates General was called um, in the 1780s. I don't think anyone in France was alive 
who had lived during the, the last time the Estates General met. So it met, and the king intended for the Estates General to just sort of be like a rubber stamp kind of a deal, where he's just going to tell them what you know fiscal reforms and new taxes and whatever he wants, and they're just going to rubber stamp it. Uh, but it turned out not all of the people in the Estates General wanted to be sock puppets, um, and ultimately some of the more radical ones then you know break away and, and form what they call the National Assembly, which is what eventually um, ends up um, uh, overturning the monarchy and uh, executing you know the yeah, king then, and, and then the guillotines get rolled out. Yeah, yeah, well, then, and then the, and that started off by the way with a relatively moderate force in control at the beginning of it all, a relatively moderate uh, uh, group of revolutionaries who some of them didn't even really want a full-blown revolution. Some of them were just like, you know, if we could just get a constitutional monarchy, a little bit more like the British, like that'd be good enough, you know? Right. But then as things started to, to snowball out of anyone's real kind of plan or control, ultimately the Jacobins, the, the much more radical ones that want to completely overturn everything um, and are willing to be ruthless to do it, they're the ones who ultimately take control. And that's where the French Revolution enters its you know, most nasty phase. But to me, the, the corollary here would be like if Antifa, like it, it starts off with like uh, criminal justice reform and then it goes Black Lives Matter. And then all of a sudden you have Antifa that's now the, the dominant political force in the country. And then you could definitely see guillotines here or something like that. What, what I find interesting is that it, it seems to me that when an empire is healthy, the people that operate within it, the politicians, the military class, things like that, they still have this capacity to absorb resources as they, as they conquer and, and give some portion of that back to the state so that it can continue to fund its operations. As the state or the empire itself declines, it seems as if basically the vultures come out and you have politicians and military class and, and uh, these unelected bureaucrats that, that essentially start to just pilfer. They just start to steal and take as much as they can as if, as if they know that the game is up, that it's almost yeah. over. And, and it's no longer, there's no longer any point in putting money back into the system because they know it's coming down. And, and I think that's where we are now. What do you think? Yeah, no, no, I, th- I think you're right about that. I think that's a very good point that, yeah, that's, that's when they'll tend to turn into, into full, full on uh, kleptocrats, right? Exactly. Where, you know, they're no longer trying to, um, at, at least not everybody that's running the system is really uh, first and foremost, trying to shore the system up and all that as much as they, yeah, they're just sort of like, you know, taking what they can uh, before the, before the game is over. I think that's, that's part of what, what typically goes on in late stage empire. And yeah, I think that is going on uh, in regard to the U S system currently. And there's something else too, that I think kind of simultaneously is playing out as well. Um, There's a very interesting book called uh, the collapse of complex societies by a guy who I think comes out of like an archeology span anthropology sort of background. Um, His last name is tainter. And the argument he makes, he's looking at, the collapse of complex societies, mostly ancient. And he says, he comes up with this sort of general model or theory to try to explain how it happens, uh, whether it's some Bronze Age society or, you know, something maybe in the early modern period. And what he says is, um, complex societies start to arise. And initially, um, as they're encountering, you know, problems of various types that they're trying to to solve for their society, uh, initially, adding on additional layers of complexity, like in terms of institutions and laws and whatever, initially adding complexity works. 
And each time they encounter a new problem, they develop some new institution and, you know, some new rules and some new uh, ways of doing things. And they're able to overcome that problem. But ultimately it's kind of like, there's a curve where each layer of complexity is adding to the productivity and success of your system up to a point. And that point is usually, you know, some combination of the limits of your technology, um, the limits of your resources and, you know, potentially, uh, if there's natural disasters, climate change, whatever, that can also cause what you're doing to no longer work as well. Mm-hmm. And so people, though, just keep trying to solve each new problem with more complexity, but you get to a point where eventually you're getting diminishing returns and then ultimately negative returns for each additional layer of complexity. And so you're at the point where new uh, complexity and in, in institutions and whatever are actually making the system worse and making the system less efficient, less capable, um, and just adding to the problem. But the thing is, it's almost like people don't even know what else to do other than slap ever more layers of complexity onto, onto the society. And, and meanwhile, they cause it to ultimately collapse. And if you look at how ridiculously complicated um, our, our government institutions are, our legal system, it, like everything is just, and, and as well in the corporate world too, even in the, in the allegedly private sector, like how many institutions, whether nominally public or private, are just so ridiculously complex, so inefficient, so top heavy, so rigid, so unable to, to innovate and respond to changes and whatever. I mean, whether it's the Department of Defense, whether it's our financial system, whether it's our legal system, I mean, you know, look at the, the bills they're passing these days, how, how long and complicated they are. Nobody even knows what the hell all is in them. That wasn't the case with, with bills Congress was passing, you know, even in the mid 20th century, let alone earlier than that. I think right. the, the, the initial bill to start creating the interstate highway system was like, I forget, 20 pages or something like this. <laughs> right. It's just like the, 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 the infrastructure bill today uh, is, 2100 something pages and it's over two trillion dollars that's that's a billion dollars per page i mean we we're so we're so deep down the rabbit hole it's it's really it's really incredible and i i think your point is well taken that you know it's it's basically a bureaucratic morass and and you now it's not just the governmental level either that's the interesting part now you have yeah. critical critical race theory and um you know things like that that's being taught not not in school but to corporate America. I mean, talk about a complete and utter waste of resources to they they have I my ex a couple of years back, she was taken out of out of work one day a month to have a seminar about how evil she was for being white, you know? Like it was and and they're doing this on a on a very grand scale. People don't understand like if you're not in corporate America, you probably think that I'm, you know, bullshitting. This is a real thing that they are spending God knows how much money and time and resources on, which is completely unnecessary. I mean, all you have to do is fire someone if they're a racist. You don't need to take everyone out and teach them that they're evil for being white. But this is, I think it's a product, not just of a declining empire, but of a declining culture. Is that is that always a corollary that the culture also kind of crumbles as the empire does? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and by the way, there's there's object, all kinds of objective evidence that things are getting so uh, uh, bloated and bureaucratic and top heavy and inefficient. I mean, you can, you can look up statistics as far as like, you know, pick almost any institution you want. Um, You know, look at schools 
let's say, like K through 12 schools, look at the ratio of teachers and students versus administrators and right. how much the, the administrator class has just ballooned where there's way more administrators per teacher or per, per student in schools. Same thing is true in colleges, by the way. There's like way more deans and VPs and all this sort of thing than there used to be, way more middle and upper uh, management. Yeah. Pay, Same pay thing in, teachers, in lots of private pay for corporations. Teachers hasn't really hasn't really skyrocketed, but when you have this this middle class, this kind of middle manager do nothing class, uh, but the I think it's a natural product of having so much money coming from the federal government level or even the state government level that you have to have all these middlemen to try and well you don't have to, but that's the justification is that well we have to have these people here to go and get these grants and get this and that and you know tr- right. it's constantly just feeding from the trough, but uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. it's doomed. <laughs> And and the same thing too, by the way, in the U.S. military, where like the the U.S. military that fought World War II had relatively few officers in proportion mm. to the to the number of enlisted men. It was mm-hmm. pretty light in terms of you know middle and upper officers. But today, there's way more middle and upper level officers yeah. um, in in proportion to the enlisted men. It's it's much more of a top heavy uh, uh, institution. So Makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, there's just something about a society that. It tends to get to a point uh, if it keeps going down the road of ever increasing complexity where it gets to this level where everything is just a mess. And for sure, um, if you look at the the latter stages of the Soviet empire, that's absolutely what you see. Now, they reached that level maybe a little bit more quickly because of the nature of communism, um, which you know is so much more efficient than even the American kind of Keynesian, you know, post-World War II uh, mixed economy system mm-hmm. that – that it caused them to lose the cold war more quickly than we did. Although, you know, now we're, we're just trying to lose it uh, a second place, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, and another interesting comparison or corollary that I've noticed, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, but the, the cover up of Chernobyl compared to the cover up of what I think was some sort of leak that I don't want to talk about uh, to, you know, keep us on YouTube here, but with Wuhan, um, do you think that there's uh, the potential that that's kind of the, in hindsight, that's looked at as our Chernobyl? Uh, maybe, you know, you know, that's a good point. I, I hadn't thought of that, that analogy. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's a lot of other, other things too. Um, you know, none of which maybe are quite as big, but yeah, where, where they try to cover up their own, um, in some cases, incompetence, and in other other cases, their own uh, malice and all that. Yeah, and um, and for the record, I don't know which it was. I don't know if it was incompetence or it was malice. At this point, I don't care because it ruined my fucking life and my country and my planet. But um, I just think it's an interesting comparison because oftentimes, when you have an empire that's healthy, even if they make a mistake, they might be able to acknowledge it, maybe you know, repair it to some extent. When you have an empire that's in collapse, like like the USSR was. They didn't have they didn't feel like they had a choice to acknowledge what had happened with Chernobyl. And I feel like that's probably potentially, um, you know, what the American empire did with the, the Wuhan issue. So I don't know. It's it's just an interesting theory that I thought about. Yeah, yeah. I, my recollection of and it's been a while since I kind of read into the details of Chernobyl and I never watched the um, the HBO series on it. But um, my recollection is that initially. Gorbachev, like his instinct was to do the standard Soviet thing and cover everything up, but that eventually, ultimately, uh, he he decided that he couldn't and he did sort of more or less. I, I don't know if he ever like personally sort of took any kind of like 
blame for it necessarily, right. but he at least stopped he threw, trying he threw to someone under the bus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he probably did. He was a politician, even though, you know, he's a relatively decent politician, but um, yeah, you know, well, and, and honestly, I, I, I think he, fine... he at least acknowledged what happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and, and that Eventually. may be true. Yeah. Like I, like I said, I, you know, my, my historical knowledge is pretty rudimentary, so maybe I have a, a misunderstanding, but it, it, I believed, or I thought that they had, they had done a pretty bad job of covering up on it. And they basically, oh, yeah. they cost a lot of people's lives because they weren't willing to acknowledge it quickly. And it, it seems as if that could be a similar situation with Fauci. It, what, what makes me question whether or not it was an accident is simply the fact that, that the American government, you know, with the few outliers like Rand Paul or Thomas Massey that are continuing to run cover for Fauci through all of this, even though it seems quite evident that he perjured himself um, when he, when he denied gain of function and things like that. Do you, do you have any opinion as to what actually transpired? And and do you think that this will be kind of the turning point or the tipping point? And last question for you, do you think, how much time do you think we have before this thing actually goes off the, the, tra- the, uh, the tracks? Mm, yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, I have no idea um, what, what actually happened behind the scenes in, in regard to all that and the origins of the virus and everything. Exactly. Um, and we may never fully know, honestly. Yeah. That's, that's um, my, that's my greatest fear is that we'll never know who actually did it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all, all I'll say, and this is sort of my, my conclusion on a lot of things like um, the JFK assassination, nine eleven, right. and, and a whole bunch of other, you know, things where there's, there's alternative explanations where the state is more nefarious and all that. Um, I, I, I know one thing for sure that the truth is definitely not the government and corporate media's narrative. That's, that's the one thing I know for sure is not the truth. That's the same thing I I say. Like like the one thing I'm sure about nine 11 is the official story is not the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The one thing I know for sure about the JFK assassination is the official story is not the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, which exactly alternate explanation is true in, in the case of all, all three of those things. I, I honestly can't say I've got, you know, I'm in the same certain, boat. Yeah. yeah, certain certain suspicions, let's say, like I'm pretty sure um, that that uh, some elements of the CIA and American mafia were involved with with the plot to kill Kennedy. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm and I pretty sure uh, some uh, of the FBI individuals I know. Okay, so. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But as far as like every last detail of exactly everybody who was involved and, and you know, of course, yeah. um, we'll, we'll never know everything. Um, oh, as far as timing goes. Yeah, th- we're in a very um, a, a very kind of perilous kind of tightrope situation right now where um, we're in a different boat than most of the rest of the world. Like most of the world has been harmed by all of the lockdowns and all of that, like pretty badly. Right. But the difference is most of the rest of the world isn't also trying to be a global empire and been trying to be that for decades. Mm -hmm. So we're in a much more fragile and weaker position than a lot of the rest of the world's, uh, uh, you know, countries and States because of that, because we were already an overextended bankrupt empire in decline when all this stuff then hit us on top of that. right? Right. So, um, as a result, we're in a much more fragile situation, not only in terms of like our actual government and financial systems, but just socially, as you were sort of, you know, alluding to before um, that. And everybody, everybody's mental health has been knocked real hard by all of this. 
but again, to have that happen in a society where it's already a, an empire in, in decline, possibly uh, running towards collapse. So I think where we're at right now is it could play out with just sort of like a gradual slow decline, but because we're in such a fragile sort of time, all it would take is just one of those black swan events, right? All it would take is, you know, one bizarre, like, could you imagine how everybody in this country would respond to something along the lines of another 9-11 attack. Like, yeah. like regardless of who supposedly did it, regardless of whether we believe the official story or not, everybody would lose their mind. I mean, people are ready to go fight each other in the street over the Rittenhouse verdict right now. Can you imagine? I, I was going to say, if, if, the, if, there was, if there was violence against Rittenhouse like in the next week or something, you know, if, like, God forbid. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, yeah. there, it just seems or, like there's a, there's a million different flashpoints and it could be any of them. Yeah, yeah, or, or like a burning of the Reichstag sort of scenario where right. you know some some major government build like forget about it some Yahoos running around peeing on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Imagine if like some actual insurrectionists you know went and and planted a bomb in, in D.C. or whatever and blew some people up. Um, we'd be left with, and of course the the media and the politicians have proven to be so uh, untrustworthy that. A huge part of the country, with good reason, would not believe whatever the official explanation was if something like that happened, you know. And so, um, you'd end up in a situation where probably a bunch of right wingers would assume it's either the government itself or maybe like an Antifa group that did it, whereas then a bunch of right wingers would assume it's, um, sorry, a bunch of bunch of left wingers would assume it's some you know neo Nazi group or whatever right. their usual boogeyman, um, and nobody would would ever, no one would be willing to look at it with a with a rational you know, objective investigation and like really is like, okay, what's the evidence actually say? And you wouldn't even be able to know, even if the, the media and law enforcement agencies in that scenario, uh, I mean, not that I would, I would believe that they would, but even if they were actually trying to do their job seriously and, and dig up the truth, um, nobody would believe them at this point because they've already cried wolf so many times and been proven uh, to be a bunch of liars. Um, they have yeah. no credibility. So like, that's the sort of thing I could see leading to like outright civil war. That would be horrible. Um, and then there's also the possibility of a black swan event in the form of like a real quick, sudden economic crisis of some sort, whether it's a dollar, dollar collapse or just a you know, massive depression. And then there's also the black swan event possibility of a foreign war of some type of U.S. goes to war against whoever, yeah. Iran. China, and we haven't um, even included, uh, you know, an asteroid or some natural event that yeah. could be catastrophic to it. I, I think that that's that's probably my biggest concern is that there. I mean, if you look at the the 2016 election and and the complete inability to get any sort of truthful coverage from the news media on it on what actually happened, uh, and then you have such unbelievable division, and it's like you get you get little dribbles of truth four, five, six years after the fact, and it, and it's by that point everyone's moved on. So like even though I was covering it back then, and I and I had a really good idea of what had ha- actually happened. By the time the truth comes out, it's too late. You know, people have already made up their minds or they've moved on to the next bullshit story. Rittenhouse is the most horrifying example. It's like you have it on video 24 hours after the fact. It couldn't be clearer for the most part. Um, and and still, I mean, you have this media narrative that is just so powerful that it has convinced people that there was completely different racial elements involved in what actually transpired. It's it's really mind blowing the the hold that they have over people. And and then I just think about like, 
what comes next? You know, what, what is the next big, and, and, and these are things that aren't even really impactful to, to people's lives. Like if it's, if it's a lie over something that's very significant, like a terrorist attack or something like that, and you have the same level of division where, you know, the, the corporate media says that it was an attack from China and, you know, the conservative people believe that it's uh you know, an FBI thing or something like, I mean, we're just so, we're just so divided and so at each other's throats. I, at, in my estimation, it's, it's, it's irreparable. Like you can't, it cannot be repaired. Do you think that there is a chance of a galvanizing moment for this culture prior to collapse or, or has that ship sailed? I, I don't think it, it would happen. Like if you, if you look at something like Pearl Harbor or something like nine 11, like those really did those, unify the public in, in a, in a tremendous way. They did. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you, you and I were, were both around for nine 11. Like I can remember in the, the immediate aftermath, everybody was like, you know, Hey, we're all on the same team kind of thing. Um, and, and for Very sure patriotic. that's definitely how, yeah, six that's or, that, six or nine months. Yeah. 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 That's, and that's how everybody felt, um, you know, in the aftermath of, of Pearl Harbor, I'm sure uh, we're all in the same team. We got to pull together and, and do what we got to do. But I don't see if something of that magnitude happened right now. I just don't see any way that that you would get that same kind of galvanizing, unifying sort of effect. Yeah. So, and, yeah, unless it I, was I think, unless it was so trans, like if it was, an, I mean, well, I guess even then I wouldn't trust what they said. But like if if a, a city were to be nuked by China or something like that, I'd be like, okay. But at that point, we're we're in nuclear war. None of this even fucking matters. So. Uh, yeah. I, I I did want to ask you one other question though, because this is probably my gr- my greatest uh, concern or my my wheelhouse of knowledge. <clears throat> what do you think, or what are the corollaries between uh, you know Weimar and and hyperinflationary periods? Can can we learn anything from that to prepare ourselves for what might be happening to us at present? Yeah, well, uh, for sure, if if actual hyperinflation hits the U.S. dollar, that is another one of those, um, you know, black swan, just, you know, metaphorical nuclear bomb goes off uh, on this very, very fragile system where, you know, our, our society is like hanging together by threads at best already. Mm-hmm. And yeah, hyperinflation is, is one of the most um, destructive things that can happen to a society like it's it's a lot worse than just a good old-fashioned economic depression or something like that oh by a mile yeah 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 so you know if that happens typically then you you tend to get a, a kind of a predictable um you know cascading set of of events in response to it at least in the modern era where if price controls sorry if if uh, hyperinflation hits probably the government responds with price controls Econ 101, price controls create shortages. Right. Shortages create all kinds of other, other problems. And then, um, you know, the government will respond with things like rationing and anti-hoarding laws and all these sorts of things. That's the usual cascade of events because politicians are not willing to, even ones that, that know economics and most of them don't, um, even if they understand economics, they're not willing to actually take the blame for causing the hyperinflation. They're going to blame, they're going to blame greedy businessmen, speculators, hoarders, et cetera. And Always. they're going to um, get more draconian and authoritarian with things like uh, price controls, rationing, anti-hoarding laws, all that. So that that's a very dangerous situation. Uh, definitely the hyperinflation in the early twenties was a major factor um, in Germany and paving the way for the ultimate rise of the Nazis, because, right. you know, a society that had just experienced defeat in world war one, 
then hyperinflation in the early 20s. Also, by the way, around the end of World War One, they were one of the countries worst hit by the Spanish flu pandemic. Mm, um, wow. And there's another corollary. Yeah. And, and then right as right as Germany was kind of starting to get its legs under it again, you know, economically and socially uh, in the late 20s, guess what happens? The global Great Depression hits and mm-hmm. again, hits them particularly hard. They got the they got the Great Depression and they didn't even really get the roaring 20s, you know, before. Right. Right. So um, it, it kicked their it kicked their economy particularly hard. And, you know, obviously, then next thing you know, the two the two biggest political parties are, are Nazis and communists and they're fighting each other in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very dangerous situation, um, both in terms of the way the government will probably respond to a hyperinflation, as well as to what can happen as far as like even crazier uh, and more you know militant and violent political movements of various types. You know, uh, suddenly getting a lot more traction, and a lot more support. Like right now, um, you know, Antifa and you know whatever fringe uh, far right, you know, quasi. Uh, racist groups or i don't even know what, what to call them or whatever you know? yeah 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 and i mean you know, there's different levels to that and and you know some of them are, are much more nefarious than others but you know they've they've never been in in our lifetime anything like the threat that the left makes them out to be but nonetheless uh in in a, a scenario of hyperinflation i could see both you know crazy far left antifa groups as well as actual you know violent white nationalists or whatever on the right suddenly getting a lot more you know traction and support and numbers of course um, yeah. in in, a, in an environment of hyperinflation and all the the chaos and misery that that causes so See, th- i mean this is as far the as, thing oh Sorry, i was go just going to say as, as far as individuals i mean you know basic prepper stuff is always a good idea um you know i would say mm-hmm. say diversify um have some crypto have some some actual precious metals um some beans, bullets, and band-aids. production you know yeah yeah be be able to defend yourself um and you know if possible if you're in a in a bad location um get out (laughs) relocate yeah get out i mean you know i'm i'm in uh i'm in north florida which um is is a little better than south florida as far as that goes but definitely south florida is better than better than california and definitely there's a lot of places better than north florida i mean if i if i didn't have uh various you know family obligations and other things holding me in Florida, I would look very hard at moving to an even better, better place uh, than, than North Florida for, for writing this out. Um, because yeah, definitely I would say, you know, stay away from, stay away from big cities, especially if they're big cities uh, in a blue state. Um, you same know, same advice I've been given for a while now. It's, it's very concerning. I think the thing that that's most weird to me is that we have this media push to make it seem as if, as you described it in the, in the 19, 19- 20s or 30s that it was communists versus fascists or nazis versus communists that were fighting it out on the streets and it's like they were dealing with a lot of economic problems like they actually went through some shit like real decade after decade shit to get there we've gone through some of the easiest living periods in human history and we still have this capacity to feel so aggrieved and and you know against our fellow uh countrymen and it's it's just a it's a fascinating development where there's there's all like just amazing economic comfort and and technological comfort that everyone has and but simultaneously people feel as if they are they have uh you know like they're just they're destitute and they have nothing to that nothing that they can't risk to you know get punishment against their political enemy it's it's weird it's a weird time 
Yeah, well, there's a there's an historical phenomenon you can see in like the lead up to a lot of uh, revolutions and things where very often what comes right before a revolution isn't like total misery. And, and, you know, people who are really, really barely getting by and like on the brink of starving or whatever, they usually actually don't rise up in rebellion uh, mm. because they're, they're all so preoccupied with just trying to like get through the next, you know, couple right. of days or whatever. Right. But w- the, the types of societies that often uh, result in revolution are often societies where they've been doing pretty well for a while and people's, you know, standards of living have been going up for a few generations. And so what happens is people get these uh, rising expectations where they they expect exactly they expect oh yeah you know the last few decades like every year we seem to be doing a little better than we were before and so i'm going to assume that's going to keep happening and so if that if if those increases stop or even if they just slow down significantly people can get very angry um even even though objectively you would look at it and be like, ah, you're still doing pretty well. And you right. know, for the last 20 years, you've been doing better every year. But yeah, and definitely you think about, you know, post-World War II America, that's very much what you have, where for the first, you know, several decades after World War II, yeah, most Americans, is, you know, who weren't – as long as you weren't at like the poverty level – probably you were doing pretty well, you know, each year doing better than the year before. And right. then, you know, things start to stagnate. And even if they're still going up, but they're just going up way slower or they're, you know, the system is getting richer, but the benefits are only going to a tiny uh, elite super class, you know, type of group. And and the vast majority of middle and working class people are are stagnating in terms of their standard of living or even going down right where, you know, like if your father or grandfather was able to buy a nice house in the suburbs and retire at a reasonable age and live a good life and whatever. And now you're living paycheck to paycheck, even though you did all the things you were supposed to do. You went to college, you, you know, got the, got the white collar job and whatever, but you just can't because the system isn't working as well as it used to. Um, you know, that's, that's going to create that, that anger and resentment and frustration because you were expecting to be able to do well. And now maybe through no fault of your own, honestly, um, you know, if, if, if houses cost a zillion dollars, um, through no fault of your own. It's like, it's not that necessarily that you're lazy and that's why you can't buy a house. It's because the system has caused housing to become unaffordable and the same uh, thing with, you know, college exactly right. and the same thing with everything else. This is the, this is the point that I try and make with libertarians is because they can be very, um, I don't know, brash when, when talking about economic, like income inequality. I, I, no, I didn't get very many likes on this tweet, but I stand by this point. If a libertarian says that income income inequality is not a problem, they are not doing libertarianism much justice because you have to be able to explain to people that the reason the income inequality is a problem is because we do not function in a meritocratic system. There is no, you know, if there's no meritocracy, then of course people should be upset that they're that they're not on top of the, this bullshit hierarchy because it is it is a bullshit hierarchy. So like yeah. it's just we have to deal with the fundamental issues, which is the Federal Reserve and over, you know, overly enlarged government and the uh, military industrial complex, all these other issues. And, and it's just I just I really hope that people can break through, because if we can't educate people as to what is actually creating the this divide and these problems prior to this this revolt, I don't think we have any chance of building back better. <laughs> you know, yeah. into something that I'd want to live in. So yeah, yeah, and I I totally second that. You know, I I talk about income inequality uh, sometimes, and you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, if you just ignore it, it doesn't go away. Right. And you know, you can 
you, you can think that the reason why everybody who's poor is poor is just because they're degenerates or whatever. And don't get me wrong. That absolutely is true of, you know, especially people who are in ab- abject poverty, like very often there's, there's real, you know, social dysfunction and things behind that. But um, as far as like their, you know, personal lives and family lives and whatever are often horrific. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are struggling to get by who are not lazy. Uh, they're just, you know, not not uh, getting uh, getting a fair chance in the in the current system because we don't already live in a perfect free market competitive, you know, um, Murray Rothbard economy. We don't. We live right. in a highly rigged control. The system we have currently is not an actual free market system. So yeah. no, it's we're not, near it. <laughs> it's not fair to say that everybody who's struggling in the current system it's their own fault because after all, everyone's got a got an equal and fair shot to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's like no, this is a completely rigged, uh, exactly. corrupt system. But There's the, a lot the of people. Libertarian are, libertarian knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, you're you're advocating for egalitarianism if you talk about income inequality being bad. It's like yeah. no, I'm not. I'm arguing against this system because right. this system doesn't allow for people to actually like by their own merit rise. And that, that should yeah. be a problem that we can agree upon with the people on the left, because if we can't acknowledge that, then they're going to look at us and say, Oh, you think that this is capitalism and you think that this is good. And we can, yeah. if we, if we aren't siding with them on the fact that this, this kind of income inequality through a kleptocracy is in fact, something that we can agree upon that it is wrong. And, and that yeah. we need to get back to more of our fundamental principles, because if we don't, if we don't, CII on this, then they're going to they're going to demand totalitarianism. And you don't want that. Right. Yeah. Also, you know, even if you think that a lot of the people who aren't doing well in the current system, it's, it's just their own fault. Even if you think that it doesn't matter, because right. if the vast majority of the masses of people in your country are convinced that, you know, they're being ripped off and income inequality is a result of the current system and whatever, they're going to start listening to more crazy, uh, radical danger, radical in the bad sense of the word, you know, right. dangerous political ideas. They're going to start to potentially listen to, to Nazis or fascists or, or communists or whatever, because those are going to be the people who are going to be addressing their problems. Now there's the, the solutions those sorts of groups will offer to their problems are not good ones, but if those are the only parties and, and organizations that are addressing people's actual, you know, grievances and, and all that, that's who's going to get the results. So I totally agree with you that. Um, you know, overall, libertarians, I, I think, should try to do a better job of of addressing these sort of issues like like income inequality that, you know, just because you're addressing that issue and acknowledging it's a real thing um, doesn't mean you're automatically then going to be on board with the communists as to the best way to fix it. Well, exactly. And, and if you're unwilling to do that, then the people that will will get those votes will be Bernie Sanders and the squad, you know, because those worse are the- than that. <laughs> Well, no, I know eventually it'll be worse than that, but I'm saying <laughs> yeah. that's the reason that those people have risen so rapidly is because that's all they talk about. And they talk about debt forgiveness for college student loans. I mean, that's a huge thing. And that's because these kids have been lied to and they thought that they had to go and get indoctrinated for four years at these shit colleges. And, and now they can't get a career because they majored in something stupid. And, you know, it's like, this is, I mean, this is all uh, like, it, it doesn't do us any good just to say, well, you fucked up. It's like, look, this was a 17 year old kid making a decision on what they're supposed to do with the rest of their life. And they've been advised after going through public school, we should have sympathy for these people. They just got indoctrinated for the first, yeah. you know, 12 years of their life. And then they had to make a decision on, on, 
how much debt they're going to take on and that that's not forgivable. It's like all of this adds up to a recipe for a Marxist populist movement. And if we don't get in front of it, we will we will get underneath it, if you know what I mean. So anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me, too. I, I, I feel the same way about, you know, the, the people that get crushed by a by student debt and and i also feel the same way about people that like join the military you know 17 18 19 years old it's like they they don't when i was 18 i was pretty dumb and i was smarter than most 18 year olds like i was already reading history books and thinking (laughs) about deep philosophical ideas and whatever and i still was an idiot and and you think about you know if you're you're by the from the time you're a toddler, you're constantly indoctrinated with, you know, pro-military propaganda in like everything you watch on TV and watch at the movies and everything around you in your local community, especially if you're in a lot of places in the South and West. And and then, you know, you're also in a town where like all the good jobs are gone and there's really nothing you can do. And it's like basically, you, you know, you either, I don't know, become a become a drug dealer or go work as a Walmart, you know, unloader or join the, the army and that actually gives you your best, uh, your best bet as far as, you know, pay and, and benefits and whatever like that. So, right. you know, I don't, and, I don't, I don't same, judge them. And these same decisions made out of desperation, be it joining the military, going over, killing innocent people, and then coming back and having PTSD and being a drug addict for the rest of your life. I have the same level of sympathy for a young poor kid in the, in the hood who didn't have a parent who ends up selling drugs at 14, 15 years old, ends up in a gang and then ends up in prison for 25 years and then comes out and his life's ruined. I mean, these are all problems that are a product of the decaying culture and libertarians don't do themselves any good to, to ignore it. So anyways, I have, I have harped on this point too much and I've kept you too long, but I really want to thank you. I think that uh, you, you added a lot of insight into things I've been mulling over for a long time and the historical uh, angle that you were able to bring to it was extremely valuable. So thank you so much for coming on. If you could tell people where to follow you, uh, I'm sure you'll get a lot of people hopping on board. Sure thing. Yeah. And thanks again for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, my podcast is the Dangerous History Podcast. If you just uh, type in in your browser, dangerousherypodcast.com, that'll take you to my homepage. Or you can just search for Dangerous History Podcast in whatever podcatcher venue you like to use. I think I'm in all the big ones. And um, I cover history, all kinds of stuff. Um, I've done more American history than anything else, but I've done some other things here and there, uh, even some ancient and and, uh, medieval stuff occasionally. And um, I'm currently in the middle of a giant, uh, many parts, many, many hour series uh, dissecting in intimate detail the life and career of Woodrow Wilson. I uh, recently put out part nine in my Woodrow Wilson series, part nine. And uh, yeah, to to give you an idea of the amount of detail, I'm on part nine and I've only gotten into the second year of his presidency because I started all the way from his childhood uh, through his career as an academic. I did a bunch, a multi-hour episode uh, taking apart all of his work as an academic, which is interesting. He's the only president where you've got like piles of books and articles he wrote about history and political science because he was in academia for decades. Fascinating. Um, so anyway, yeah, check that out. I've, I've done series in, in years gone by. I've done series on uh, the Civil War, the American Revolution, uh, a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, if you want, um, if, if you want to experience a podcast where if Dan Carlin got smushed together with um, Murray Rothbard, Lysander Spooner, George Carlin, and uh, John Carpenter, I guess that that would be sort of how I would describe my podcast, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, it does. It does. I, I, I describe myself as Joe Rogan meets Ron Paul. So I, I like the I like the combination. Oh, <laughs> um, and if you want to follow him on Twitter, it is at Prof 
profcj.org, D-O-T-O-R-G. Anything else you'd like to leave the people with or can we get out of here? No, I guess that's it. Uh, Yeah, check out my show. And um, yeah, if you're a listener to Liberty Lockdown, you probably would enjoy my show very much. I think so too. Well, thank you so much, CJ. It was a blast.